3,300 years ago, a crew of men were working on the banks of the Nile. There was about 40 of them, maybe more, divided into two groups. They stood on the banks of a canal or a harbour, and in their hands, these 40 men held a pair of long, thick ropes. The ropes connected to the bow of a large wooden ship, an enormous construction, elaborately decorated with a tall mast. It had a lavish two-storey cabin amidships. The roof was bedecked with statues of golden cobras, uraei, the symbols of royalty, the power of the pharaoh. The forty-odd men clutching their ropes were preparing to launch a new state barge, a magnificent ship for the king of Egypt. Behind the gangs of men, another man stood watching. He wore a long pleated robe. His belly was heavy, prosperous. His wig was layered, finely coiffed, and in one hand he held a rod, a short staff, his symbol of office. The man was a royal official. His name was Mary Neath, and he was in charge of this operation. Launching the ship was a strenuous, laborious affair. Besides Mary Neath and his two gangs, there were others making the boat move. A pair of four men stood on the prow of the ship itself. They shouted directions to the rope haulers below. Beneath the boat, a third group used their backs and legs to carefully lift the ship out of the mud. Pulling this barge was a communal effort, and as the work began, the effort was intense. Mary Neath, the overseer, lifted one arm. This was the signal, the moment to pull and to launch the great ship. The work teams acted, their muscles tensed, their movements synchronised, their feet pressed into the earth. They began to pull, straining on the ropes, dragging the ship forward one foot at a time. Like their ancestors who built the great pyramids, these men threw all their energy into pulling those ropes, forcing the object to move. The supervisors on top of the ship shouted commands and guided movements. The other men beneath the boat put all of their energy into lifting the massive construction. Slowly, the wooden beams creaked and began to slide forward. The decorated cabin wobbled. The ship began to move. With monumental effort, the labourers dragged the boat off the riverbank and down towards the water. The immense craft lurched, then began to slide down the slope. The men beneath scrambled out of the way as the ship splashed into the river. It bobbed, and for a moment, the builders may have watched with bated breath. Would it float, or would their work sink to the bottom of the canal? The ship bobbed, settled in the water, but it remained upright and afloat. From the riverbanks, the men cheered as their work met with success. The new barge was launched. A great day was accomplished. As the workers celebrated, their overseer took note of the events. Mary Neath, a royal official, marked the progress they had made. He would record this event later in a most sacred space, his tomb. Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. Mary Neath, the first servant of Aten. 
Around 1340 BCE, an Egyptian official named Meri Neith went to his burial. His tomb was located west of the royal capital, the city Men-Nefer, or Memphis. His tomb was magnificent, elaborately decorated and intricately constructed. 3,000 years later, that tomb returned to the light, when archaeologists from Leiden University in the Netherlands uncovered the monument. Today, the tomb of Merineith is visible once more. It is partially reconstructed and conserved. And thanks to this discovery, we can tell the story of a most interesting man. Our tale begins around 1355 BCE, the middle years of Akhenaten, pharaoh of Egypt. The favoured son of Aten, Akhenaten had changed many facets of Egyptian royal policy. One of those, of course, was the management of temples. Several large institutions, the houses of great gods, witnessed upheavals in their business and administration. Priests lost their jobs sanctuaries closed, and economic resources diverted to the pharaoh's new shrines. The houses of Aten, the king's favourite deity, thrived in this period. The people who managed those temples thrived as well. Today, we meet one of these individuals. A man who served Akhenaten as a priest for the sun god. His name was Meri Neith, and as you can imagine, he had a rather complicated career. Merineith was probably born around 1380 BCE, during the reign of Amunhotep III. The name Merineith is quite simple. It means beloved of Neith. Neith is a goddess. She comes from the north, specifically the delta region of Egypt. Traditionally, Neith is a combination of various roles. She could be a war goddess or a protector, and she was also a huntress, which is perfect for the Delta region that swarms with game and provides ample opportunities for fishing, fowling, and pursuing. Meri Neith, beloved of Neith, is a classic Egyptian name. It works for both men and women, and we've actually met a Meri Neith before. Way back in the First Dynasty, one of the first rulers of Egypt was a woman named Meri Neith. So it is a traditional name in the classic sense. Growing up, Meri Neith was the very image of a normal Egyptian name. So Meri Neith was born in the reign of Amunhotep III, and he probably started his career towards the end of that period, maybe the beginning of Akhenaten. We see his career documented in his tomb. And here, it appears in three distinct phases. Three eras in which Meri Neith worked for the government and served the king of Egypt. According to the tomb, our man first appears in the reign of Akhenaten sometime around years five to nine. He shows up in the city of Memphis, working for the government. Specifically, Meri Neith worked in the temples of the great sun god Aten. According to the inscriptions from his monument, Meri Neith was the, quote, Emira per en per aten im men nefer, 
the House Overseer of the House of Aten in Memphis. Conventionally, historians translate this title as Steward of the Temple of Aten. Basically, Merineth was in charge of the day-to-day business, the economic affairs of the temple. He showed this in his tomb. Adorning the walls, artistic scenes show Merineth in his day-to-day job. He oversees workers, artisans, and craftsmen who were working on behalf of the temple. According to these reliefs, Merineth supervised the jewellery makers, the carpenters producing furniture, and the sculptors making royal statues. In this art, the temple workshops are full of hustle and bustle as the daily business goes on. All of this took place in the early reign of Akhenaten, and one image shows a sculptor making a statue of that king. In a tiny vignette, a craftsman affectionately touches a bust of Akhenaten. The statue wears a headdress and a double crown, and it has the elongated face of that king. Unfortunately, someone chiseled away the pharaoh's visage later on. Today, only cuts remain. Another case of Akhenaten erased from history. Anyway, Merineth worked as the house overseer, or steward, for the Temple of Aten. The artistic scenes show him standing or sitting around, supervising the business. His scribes take note of what is happening, and they report back to the official. Basically, Merineth was a high-ranking manager. He supervised the business of a large, bustling temple. So Merineth oversaw a Per Aten im Mennefer, a House of Aten in Memphis. This temple is still undiscovered, archaeologists have not located it yet, but there are several references to a House of Aten in Memphis during this period. That means there must have been an Aten temple somewhere in the city, a place where Akhenaten, his family, and his servants could honour the great sun god. Hopefully, more traces of that temple will show up one day. For now, people like Merineth are the best clue to its business and operation. So Merineth's career began in the first decade of Akhenaten's rule. Those early days seem relatively straightforward compared to what came later. The king had his agenda, his beliefs, but he hadn't reached the extreme point that he would later. Inevitably, though, people like Merineth would have to deal with the heresy, quote-unquote. That period when Akhenaten started to become more restrictive, more hostile to gods besides Aten. How he and some of his colleagues dealt with that is quite intriguing. It all started with a promotion. At some point in Akhenaten's reign, Merineth took a step up the professional ladder. Phase two of his career is murky, with a few lingering questions. But Egyptologists studying this tomb have reconstructed an idea of what might have happened. It seems that around year nine of Akhenaten's reign, Merineth left the city of Memphis. He moved away from the capital and headed south, to the city of Akhet Aten, Amana, the new royal residence, the new heart of Egypt's government. 
Mary Neath went to Amarna to serve the pharaoh in a prominent and prestigious role. He would be the high priest of Aten. Mary Neath moved to Amarna to become the foremost religious official serving the pharaoh. This was a plum position, lots of authority, plenty of food and drink from the temple, and influence. Connections with the wealthy and powerful of the court. It was a major step up for the former steward. Moving to the city, Mary Neath may have felt excited at the sudden upward swing. Of course, there was a catch. This next part is a little vague, but it seems that Mary Neath's new job required something from him. When he came to Amana to become the high priest of Aten, Mary Neath needed to show his loyalty to the regime. He needed to make a display of his devotion to the Aten and to the Aten's son, Akhenaten. What did he do? Well, Mary Neath changed his name. Sometime in the middle of his career, Mary Neath's tomb at Memphis shows an interesting change. The name Mary Neath itself disappears, either chiseled out or omitted. Now, in this phase, we get a new name, Mary Ra or Mary Ray. The former steward dropped the Neath part of his name and changed it to Ra. The goddess was out, the sun god was in. What gives? Mary Neath is not the only official who changed their name during Akhenaten's rule. It seems that many individuals decided to rebrand or re-identify themselves during this time. Besides Mary Neath, other 18th dynasty tombs show people changing their identities during Akhenaten's reign. For example, a royal sculptor named Ken Amun changed his name to Ken Aten. A treasury official named Hatiai altered his identity to Hatira, and a butler named Pitar M. Weir might have changed his name from Amun M. Weir. These are just a few of the names that Egyptologists have found. People altering their identities during Akhenaten's reign. It seems there was a wave of royal officials rebranding at a politically sensitive moment. Of course, the big question is, did these people change their names voluntarily, or were they coerced? In other words, did Akhenaten demand that his courtiers adopt more Aten-friendly identities, or did they do it on their own? This is one of those situations where your personal feelings will play a big part in your interpretation. Fundamentally, all we know is that some officials did change their names. The motivations are unclear. So your assessment of this will depend on your personal view of Akhenaten. Do you think the king was a fanatical, obsessive ruler? A megalomaniac who demanded everyone else go along with his views? Or do you think he was a careful, methodical ruler, pursuing a political or religious agenda, slightly divorced from reality? Maybe it's both, a mixture, or something else. Either way, the question of did these people change their names voluntarily, or because the pharaoh demanded it, that's going to rely on your personal assessment. 
I won't tell you what I think, but I will say that Akhenaten's regime seems like the place where royal favour and royal attention was crucial to success. If a person wanted to get ahead, changing their name probably would have been advantageous. Whether Akhenaten ever said this, or it was simply understood, I do not know. But Merineith and people like him give us a tantalising hint at politics behind the scenes. Merineith moved to Arket Aten. He went there to become the new high priest of the sun god, the first servant of Aten, the man responsible for managing the grand temples. As part of this process, Merineith changed his name to Meri-Ra, beloved of Ra, and he shows up at Arket Aten with that name. I'm going to continue calling this person Merineith, otherwise it gets confusing. And perhaps the man himself secretly kept that name in his heart. After all, Mary Neath had grown up as beloved of Neath. It was part of his heritage, his identity. And as we will see, he did not keep the new name for long. So even though he shows up as Mary Ra, I will call him Mary Neath. Cool? Cool. While he lived at Arket Aten, Merineith worked in the magnificent temples. He also started to build a new tomb. A second burial monument, replacing his original one at Memphis, shows up at the city of Amana. This new tomb, Amana Tomb Number 4, was lavish. It had large rooms, columns, beautiful decorations, and a small shrine at the end for a statue of the owner. This tomb would have been lovely when completed, but Merineith never finished it or used it. Unfortunately, his time as the high priest in Arket Aten did not last for very long. Merineith, calling himself Meri-Ra, served the great king Akhenaten for the rest of his reign. He stayed at the royal city and made offerings in the temples. He received visits from the pharaoh, who came to the sanctuaries of Aten regularly. Merineith was now part of the inner circle, the most select and prestigious group in the Egyptian government. It's not clear how much time he spent with Akhenaten, but we can assume that Merineith received many instructions from the pharaoh. After all, the temples of Aten were constantly under construction. They were being updated and expanded throughout Akhenaten's reign. And chances are, Merineith was involved in the countless celebrations, festivals, offerings, and processions that Akhenaten demanded. I do not envy him this job. It was probably stressful, and it was probably incredibly busy. Maybe he liked it, maybe not. Either way, Merineith served Akhenaten during some truly tumultuous years. After the death of Akhenaten, we come to phase three of Merineith's career. This part is relatively straightforward. When the old king died, and the royal court decided to leave the city of Amana, Merineith returned to Memphis. We know that he left Arket Aten and went north again, 
because he suddenly resumed work on his old tomb. Having abandoned Amarna, Merinif came back to his original burial monument. He also came back to his original name. In the later sections of his Memphis tomb, Merinif restores his original identity. No more Meri-Ra, the inscriptions revert to Merinif. The official's titles also change slightly. Some of his older job descriptions disappear in Phase 3, and he mainly appears as the High Priest of Aten. This is actually quite interesting. It seems that Merinif returned to Memphis during that period when the rulers of Egypt were still officially acknowledging the Aten. Kings like Neferneferu Aten and Tutank Aten walked a fine line, balancing the Aten and the traditional gods. It is almost certain that Merinif was a witness to those events. After the death of Akhenaten, Merinif continued in his role as high priest of the Aten. Even when he moved back to Memphis, he still held that title, but he probably transferred his duties to the Memphis Aten Temple. So, he was still involved in royal business and the religious offerings to the sun god. Even though Akhenaten was dead, official policy still honoured Aten. Merinith made that happen. Returning to Memphis, Merinith took over management of the northern Aten temple. By this point in his career, the high priest of Aten was probably quite wealthy. We can guess this because he invested heavily in the last stages of his tomb. The outer decorations of Merinith's monument are excellent quality, really exquisite carvings. It seems that by now, Merinith had access to the finest royal sculptors. As the Egyptian government started to leave Amarna, many of the high-quality workers would have gone with them. So, as a result, the tomb of Merinith enjoyed a sudden uptick in artistic quality. In the later years of his life, the high priest of Aten invested heavily in the beauty of his monument. Finally, towards the end of his life, Merinith gained another title. This one might have been important on a personal note. You see, having served as the high priest of Aten, Merinith also became the high priest of Neith. Sometime after Akhenaten, Merinith's tomb shows the title Chem Necher Tepi Emhut Neith, the first god's servant in the estate of Neith. In other words, he became the leading priest in a temple dedicated to his namesake goddess. Once again, this temple is undiscovered. It might have been located in Memphis, and it was probably quite old. References to the temples of Neith go back, way back, into the Old Kingdom. She was a popular god in Memphis and the northern region. Mary Neith, beloved of Neith, now became her foremost servant. I like to think that the new job meant something personal to Mary Neith, high priest for his namesake deity, in the greatest city in the land. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but I like to imagine that he was happy. Merinith died sometime in the reign of Tutankhamun. 
Unfortunately, excavations at his tomb did not reveal any evidence of the man's burial. It might have been destroyed when later generations borrowed this tomb for their own graves. Or maybe Merineith and his family are still there, their bones scattered among the rest. We do not know. All we know is that the high priest of Aten built a lovely tomb west of the city of Memphis. It remains there to this day. So the high official Meri Neith, beloved of Neith, lived and worked in a remarkable time. Born with a traditional name, he happened to work under a pharaoh whose attitude to the old gods was ambiguous at best, hostile at worst. Managing this situation, Meri Neith still prospered. He had to change his name for a while, but he enjoyed a steady rise in his career. Ultimately, this man became the high priest of Aten, under Akhenaten and his successors. It seems that Merineith was the sort of man who could navigate a difficult political environment. The currents were treacherous and unpredictable, but Merineith, like the warrior goddess for whom he was named, emerged victorious. He retained his position, and at his death, he went to a goodly burial. West of Memphis, not far from the temples of Neith and Aten, he enjoyed his eternal rest. Today, we can remember him. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was by Keith Zizza and Bettina Joy de Guzman. Follow the link in the episode description to hear more of their wonderful songs. Also, thank you to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, my priest-level supporters on Patreon.com. Folks, you are too kind, and thanks to your generosity, I did not have to change my name in order to do my job. From my house, to the house of Artin, and to your houses, thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to the show. I hope you've enjoyed the story, and I will see you soon.